five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. We are talking about space sustainability this week. I sat down with an expert in the topic, Ian Christensen from the Secure World Foundation. A lot of the conversation is about space debris, but we also talk about some other interesting topics. Check it out. If you enjoy the podcast in general, a reminder, please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple, so more people can find it. Thank you. As I mentioned last time, we just released a brand new MOOC about the space economy in collaboration with the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Lausanne, EPFL, one of the world's most prestigious universities. There's a link in the episode notes. I think a lot of you will love this new online course. Now, as usual, here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors, and then please enjoy my conversation with Ian Christensen. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Welcome back, space enthusiasts. It's time for another episode. Our guest today, Ian Christensen. He's the director of private sector programs at the Secure World Foundation. Welcome, Ian. Hi, Raphael. It's good to be here. How are you doing today? Great. And I'm doing this from Washington, D.C., where I am at the Satellite Conference, one of the big annual space conferences. So, Ian, um, why don't you expand a little bit on that short introduction I, I gave of you, and including what, what is the Secure World Foundation? <laughs> Yeah, thanks. And I'll start there. So uh, Secure World Foundation is a uh, nonprofit organization or non-governmental organization, depending on the, the context, um, based in the U.S. Uh, offices in D.C. and my office is in uh, Denver, Colorado. We focus broadly on uh, the issue of space sustainability. And I think Raphael will probably talk a little bit more about what that issue set is. Mm -hmm. But sure. at, the at the high level, that is essentially how does the global community continue to operate in and benefit from a stable orbital environment. And so most of the work we do is about bringing together cooperative discussions around policy or operational issues that affect space sustainability and trying to develop cooperative and community solutions to those issues. My background uh, academically, my training is in space policy. I'm part of the uh, GW Space Policy Group and uh, also uh, ISU alumni from the summer session program in Beijing in, in 2007. Mm -hmm. Before working at Secure World, I spent a number of years working as a kind of business and market strategic consultant in the commercial space world, both advising companies on market forecasts and business plans, and then working with governments on how to leverage commercial space capabilities. Um, at Secure World, taking that background, I focus on uh, the commercial space industry and what that means for space sustainability. And by the way, what's the history of Secure World? Like, how did that start? Yeah, so Secure World was established in uh, the early 2000s, and we operate out of a, uh, a private endowment, and our founders basically are interested in global stability and they um, 
built up uh, built up some personal wealth and uh, in, in commercial real estate uh, environment. And said we want to give mm-hmm. back to the we want to give back to the world, and so uh, set up two different foundations. One of us is uh, one of them is, is Secure World, and basically our founder Cinda Collins Arsenal did some research and said nobody's really working on stability in the space domain, uh, mm. and I want to do that, and so. Hence, here we are. That's 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 great. That's a lot of foresight yeah. in the early 2000s. Yeah, Cinda is an amazing person. Um, so we were very fortunate to work for her. And so what made you, um, as you said, you, you, you've done a few other things in, um, throughout your career history. What what made you want to join Secure World Foundation? <laughs> uh, the, 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 the brief answer is that it's, it's, it's the, the the coolest space policy organization in, in, in the community. Um, so that was to, to, to be less flip. Working in consulting, right, uh, got to see a lot of the change going on in the industry. Uh, got to see a lot of the economic growth and the you know, societal benefit that, that space capabilities provide. But consulting is a reactive industry, right? You're, you're, you're responding to clients' needs. And um, it got to the point where I wanted to do something a little more proactive and be involved in an organization that was out there uh, trying to be more actively involved in, in, in bringing benefits and, and addressing challenge and so um, the opportunity presented itself to move over to the secure world and I, I, I took it right and the rest as to say is history so you, you brought up the key question before already so what what is space sustainability how do you guys define that yeah so um, like I said at the high level it's about what is the benefit that space provides to us as a community and how do we maintain that benefit through addressing uh, a host of challenges in, in the orbital domain? So basically sustainability, right? You know, how do you continue to operate in and use a domain for the things that you rely upon that domain for while not damaging that domain for other uses and for the future? And so we're, we're looking at that in, in the space context. Um, and so that involves things like space situational awareness. How do you know what is going on, what other operators are doing, what objects are in space, uh, addressing space debris policy, how do we mitigate existing debris objects and reduce the potential for, for future debris. Um, it involves you know, being open and, and communication around national security uses of space and some of the offensive counter space developments and making sure that we are aware of what's going on and try to reduce uh, the potential for, for kinetic conflict in space. And it involves application policy. Um, how do we access the data? How do we ensure that capacity exists uh, across society to use space systems and, and their applications and how do policymakers and regulators uh, adapt to, to to those those applications. I hope that was useful. Could probably keep going, but um, I don't have anything. Uh, I, and yeah. There's actually quite a few things we yeah. can expand on, so yeah. that's very useful. It's, it's funny, on a very high level, and I don't know it's a good comparison, it reminds me a little bit of like sometimes how you know, people think about the oceans yep. and making sure the oceans you know remain usable for yep. humanity, and I guess it is yeah, another domain. Yeah, well, and, and not only another domain, another commons domain, right, where where there is um, areas that are are shared use, and we have to you know look at them from a from an international standpoint, not a purely domestic standpoint. Right? Exactly, and you yeah. have the commercial angle, you have the yeah. military angle, and, and and all of that. Okay, but so let's okay let's expand on some of the things you said. So you, you mentioned, um, for example, space debris, right? And we've actually had a few recent episodes with you know with um, companies in that ecosystem, people are doing like SSA, uh, space situational yep. awareness, or even um, active debris removal yep. company. Like, uh, Luke from Clear Space was on a few episodes ago. So there's one aspect, um, which would be, we're talking about debris, which would be dealing with existing debris, yep. right? And there's already a lot of stuff up there, as, as we all know, depending on the size, it goes into like the millions of objects. So one, I guess, unanswered question that we still have about uh, the active to remo- debris removal is, I just compared it to the oceans and the oceans, you know, I think both the orbits and the oceans are basically, unfortunately, examples of what we call the tragedy of the commons in economics, yep. right? Yep. That 
like there's basically uh, people are allowed to overuse it and if everybody overuses it then um, basically the outcome is non-ideal for everybody uh, and so related to that is one question with the act of debris removal as well who's paying for it who's incentivized yeah. to pay for it um, how, how do you guys think about it? Because I'm sure you, ha you <laughs> yeah. guys have thought about it. Yeah. So the, so the answer currently is right. Nobody is incentivized to, to pay for it. Um, is the, exactly. the sad answer, right? Um, and so, you know, when you talk about the debris problem, I, I, I often try to simplify it to two camps or, or two groups of debris, right? There's the, the existing objects, which I think Raphael, you started this question with, and then there's the, what are we doing mm -hmm. with, with new objects and how we're creating potentially more debris, right? We, so we got to that. Yeah, so, we got to the future. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the historical objects are government objects, right? And so who has the responsibility to pay for them? In theory, those governments. But what's the incentive for them to do that? We, we've not seen that yet. And what we are seeing is, is some governments, in particular in the UK, uh, ESA, and JAXA, Japan, investing in um, technology development and, and initial kind of pilot contracts for active debris removal mm -hmm. contracts, right? So ClearSpace, uh, who you just mentioned, Luke, they have a they have an ESA contract, and I believe they have um, no, they, they don't. Sorry, it's Astroscale, of course, then has a, a Japanese government contract and a, mm -hmm. and a UK contract, right, to mm -hmm. go after some um, some debris objects. And those are great, useful pathfinders, right? They, they start to validate some technology. They start to show some demonstrated government interest in addressing this problem, but they don't, um, they don't move the numbers, right? I mean, one or two objects uh, is, is a good start, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't solve the, 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 the fundamental problem. Um, and then the question is, okay, so how do you take those initial government pilot programs and expand them into commercial viability? Um, and to me, that is where the mm -hmm. question of the future objects comes in, right? So we're seeing all of these very large constellations, the, the OneWebs, the Starlinks, the, the Amazon Kuipers of the world, right? And some of those companies are beginning to work with at very low levels, very initial levels with some of the active debris removal companies to at least demonstrate theoretical capability to have those satellites removed at, the, at their end of life if the design deorbit fails. And so that's beginning of a market, potentially. Uh, and more significantly, if those constellations fly, they, they create economic value in, in low Earth orbit regimes where right now we don't necessarily have um, monetarily defined economic value, right? It's application benefit, it's societal benefit, but they're not widely used for uh, large-scale commercial use. And so if you have if you have economic value in the orbit itself, that maybe begins to solve the incentive problem of, 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 of needing to pay for cleanup, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. What do you think? Some people are trying to float you know, um, approaches like, you know, like sort of like a triple A type membership yeah. where everybody pays a small amount. Do you guys looked into that? I haven't looked at that model specifically. Uh, it doesn't, first off, it wouldn't address the the historical objects, right? Because it's already there, right? So it's, uh, you know, yeah. do, do you have to pay to clean up the mistakes of the people that came before you? And that's always a tough sell. Um, yeah. What uh, what we have been involved a little bit is, is uh, there's a, an effort called the Space Sustainability Rating that was uh, started under the World Economic mm -hmm. Forum and then moved to MIT. And that was being kind of formalized and, and put to market with uh, the EPFL Space Center in Switzerland. And that attempts to follow like the lead green building model to say, you know, here's a various certification levels of your sustainability performance. And so uh, that uh, I, I believe uh, will include some uh, some points, uh, bonus points, if you will, for using or, or being designed to use active debris removal services. So it is one potential way in which um, you could design more market-facing inducements to, um, to to encourage debris removal. See where that goes. Um, it's, it's been developed mm -hmm. and they're just mm -hmm. bringing it to market, you know, in the next year, I think. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And so if we talk about avoiding future debris, if you continue talking about that, so where are we with regard to sort of approaches besides the um, the, the one you just mentioned, Space Sustainability Index, um, of, of, of tackling that issue? Because I mean, there, there's a lot of ways we can think about or you know, approaches we can take or maybe should take, like stuff ranging from... I think at some point in time, there was a proposal in the US, which I think hasn't made it, it didn't make it in the end, that anybody who's operating below a certain orbital altitude needs to have propulsion, right? I mean, yeah. the, so there's potential legal avenues like yeah. that. Why don't we start there and then kind of explore some other things as well? Yeah, so um, yeah, in the US, right, this is all regulated oddly under the, the Federal Communications Commission, which is where you go to get your spectrum license mm-hmm. and they have the debris, uh, debris uh, mitigation requirement as part of that. Um, they have tried to uh, include some more stringent requirements. Um, industry has reacted to those, and a number of them um, did not move forward, but a number, of, a number of them have. So one example, and without trying to get too um, too detailed and wonky here, but uh, the FCC introduced a new licensing category for small commercial small satellite constellations, right? And they included in there um, some requirements that you, to qualify for this, lower cost, uh, faster licensing. You need to you need to certify and demonstrate that you've registered your spacecraft with uh, space tracking capabilities in the U.S. with the uh, 18th Space Control Squadron, the, the military mm-hmm. organization that does this, right? So requiring that operators, you know, demonstrate that that, that they're that they're going to have you know active registration um, for 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 SSA purposes. Um, it also required. Um, uh, certain um, maneuverability requirements, not propulsion, but maneuverability requirements, right? Um, so small steps, right? Um, the other thing that, <laughs> that I think is important that we need to get a handle on the, in the uh, the regulatory and, and, and um, standards community is the idea that what we have now is a 25-year guideline, right? That your spacecraft, regardless of what its mission is, regardless of what orbit it is, needs to be either deorbited or moved to the graveyard uh, orbit at, at, at 25 years, at, at within 25 years of the end of mission. The idea that that is a uniform, effective guideline for all types of space activities today is, is frankly not accurate, right? So we need to be able to move towards more specific guidelines and, and practices and requirements for, for specific orbital domains. And we're just beginning to get to that conversation, but uh, it definitely needs to move along forward. Yeah, I and mean, that specific uh, lifetime guideline seems, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems simply like a leftover from the days of like when most satellites were like big TV geostationary yeah. broadcasting yeah, was, satellites with those sorts of lives. Yeah, it was developed in in, in that era, and it, and it has not been um, been updated in 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 light of a, a much different environment that we have today, right? Mm. Yes, there are many many satellites, uh, especially smaller satellites, have design lives of like five to right. seven years. Right. So. Yeah. So so the, the, <laughs> the business model. Sense. Right. So the business model is to replace the satellites every five years. You don't want them in your constellation beyond mm-hmm. that, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. the, the regulatory community hasn't necessarily caught up with that uh, with that practice. Mm-hmm. And you started mentioning sort of like tracking space objects and you know that people sharing data with um, the, the U.S. authorities. And where are we on space? traffic management um because if you compare sort of like to aviation traffic management right that's sort of very established on earth i think working relatively well um compared to that very space but what's on the to-do list there yeah um we we don't have anything that that resembles aviation uh traffic management and i don't know necessarily that that we ever will you know the physics are 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 entirely different the the legal environment is Mm -hmm. entirely different right so there's there's some examples that can be taken from from civil aviation but i don't think you know it's the wholesale model that will apply to to space where we are is that there's 
growing recognition that uh, a more holistic approach to space traffic management is needed. Uh, where we aren't is any agreement on what that, that holistic approach should look like. So there are domestic initiatives in the U.S. to uh, develop uh, space traffic management approaches, which is um, kind of caught up in, in congressional slow progress right now, but it's move some of the functions from the DOD into the civil side of government and build a, a better public data catalog for, for SSA information, bring in commercial services. Europe has a number of initiatives going on around defining a European approach to space traffic management. What principles that will share with the U.S. approach is to be determined, and then there are conversations going on in Japan and elsewhere, and China is beginning to show some interest as well, right? So growing consensus that we need this, little consensus about what should be included in it. I mean, that's, you know, actually, and I, I, I'm aware and I fully agree that the comparison with um, air traffic yeah. management is obviously not perfect, but in some ways it's even scarier or more difficult, right? Because yeah. air traffic management, by and large, you're trying to avoid collisions between active right. objects, yeah. which of course we have in space, we have active satellites, but the problem in space, we have all of these non-active, non-cooperative yeah. objects in the form of debris, right? right. defunct satellites. So it makes it even more complex. Right. And a large portion of them, we don't even know where they are, right? They're, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're essentially untrackable. Right. Yet they're still, mm -hmm. you know, my, uh, some of my contacts in the technical world refer to things as lethal non-trackables, right? Which is a fairly blunt term about what the what the potential of some of these objects are that we can't even see. Um, yeah, I find it's, it's funny. It was recently in the news, right, with this um, spent rocket stage that crashed into the moon, yeah. and, and it basically confusion that for quite a few days. I think nobody actually knew what that. Yeah. Rocket stage was. Yeah, was it SpaceX <laughs> or was it Chinese? Right. Yeah. yeah. Chinese. Or, yeah. 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 And so it kind of, um, it kind of uh, made it clear to me that you know that there really is this lack of knowledge. And then I was actually speaking to some people here at Satellite, and they're like, "Well, this actually happens all the time. It's just for some reason this this time it got publicized." I'm like, "Okay." Yeah, because it, it was because like it was really a scope to improve SSA. Yeah. Well, and if you're talking about you know cislunar lunar orbits, there is very you know, most of the systems that we have are focused on Leo and Geo. Right, and so you get beyond mm -hmm. geo, and the, and the data is just very, very thin. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely need to, you know, and we're definitely seeing a lot of commercial interest in in the moon, right? And so it'd be nice to develop some of these these capabilities alongside that interest. And so, so the other thing, if I continue with the comparison with, with air traffic management, air traffic management, of course, works very well because, for all I can tell, the international cooperation there is is very established yeah. and, and functioning. Yeah. Like you know, just it gets hand, hand just gets handed over from one uh, air traffic yeah. control authority uh, to another. Yeah. How is this gonna? How do you think this might work in space, especially now that, unfortunately, we're going to what seems like a much less cooperative world? Yeah, I mean, I hope we're not going to a much less cooperative world. Although there are some current events that uh, would support that uh, that that conclusion, unfortunately. Um, so, in the air traffic world, as I understand things, a lot of it is driven by stand, right? So that if you're a Chinese or a Brazilian or a U.S. Uh, civil aviation operator, you go to these what are called SARPs, and they're they're very standardized practices that you know you can know will be followed regardless of who the other operators are, right? Um, and standards can flow down the regulation, they can flow down the industry practice, right? I see a role for standards in um, in, uh, in in the space operator world as well, right? And that is, you know, can we get to the point where we have common protocols for operator-to-operator -operator interaction when there's a conjunction, right? Right now, that is very fairly informal, right? You call somebody or you send an email, right, and say, we think we have a potential conjunction, we need to figure this out, right? Can we standardize that? Can we get to the ways mm -hmm. that that is, you know, a common communication format, a common set of orbital information that you're sharing in that, right? And I think there are some, you know, the, there's, an, there's an organization called the Space Data Association, which focuses on GEO, uh, and it's 
Mm-hmm. They do some of this already, right? So there's some practice there. So um, that's one area. After that, can we then start talking about what are kind of uh, rules of the road or, or, or right-of-way principles, right? So if you're in the conjunction where both of the objects yeah. are maneuverable, can we standardize the the criteria in which which operator moves, right? And and has, I, I was going to yeah. ask you about that. Yeah. Sort of like the equivalent of like you know in certain countries when you're at a at a road intersection, right? Yeah. And there's, there's there's no signs. It's like oh, you're coming from the right. You got a right of way, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do we have anything like we, that? We, the moment, or is it we just don't. Like, we don't. And okay. and I think it's something that can take some work and it's going to take some operators sitting down in the room and, 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 and having some difficult conversations between competitors, right? But I think we can get there. You know, I think there's the economic interest in maintaining, you know, the health of your asset that will encourage that. I think that we're going to see as the number of potential conjunctions and, and collision warnings increase, that that's going to become an operational burden on the operators. And that's going to be an incentive to try and find a more cost-effective way of, of, of solving this challenge. And so I think these sorts of trends will push towards um, figuring out some more systematized um, um, ways of dealing with this. But it's not going to be something okay, that emerges tomorrow. And it's not going to be something that's like, yeah. you know, we see an announcement from SpaceX and, and, and the Chinese that they've agreed to something, right? Um, it's going to be slow. It's going to be gradual. And it's, and it's going to can take a little bit of time and hopefully it gets done before there's a, a catastrophic event, right? Um, but yeah. but it, here, you actually just gave me my, the, the next two questions I was going to ask. Because one is, how do you how do you see this happen? Who is going to be driving this? Does this, ha- does this have to be driven, for example, by, by by the UN, by UNOSA? Is it some industry association? Is it is it you guys? Yeah. Or how, how are we going to start making these conversations happen? Yeah, so I, I, I think it's a... A combination of things, right? I think it's uh, I think it's going to come from the operator side up, right? I think operators are going to see increased costs to their to their operations from not having some standard practices, and that's going to drive some momentum um, from the operators to communicate amongst themselves and begin to figure some things out. It's also going to come from domestic regulatory and and policy making action. So you know, and I would, with apologies, I would lump I, w- I would combine Europe as a, as a as a quasi domestic in, in this case, right? So not not German. Germany or France individually, but, you know, EU or ESA, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so Mm -hmm. regulatory action in in the U.S., policymaking action in the U.S., policymaking action in in the EU, policymaking action in in China, Japan, et cetera. So kind of a combination of streams that are going to work, you know, informed of each other, but somewhat independently. And then through that, common principles are going to be developed. I then think those will be eventually, I don't want to say codified, but, you know, formalized a little bit at the international level um but i don't think it's an international top-down process i don't think that is uh, that is i don't think that is likely in the current con- uh, current climate no. yes so i mean speaking of the current climate and you know potentially going towards uh, towards a less cooperative world at least the way it looks right now i mean we we had the other sort of very unfortunate debris generating <laughs> events is obviously yeah. um anti-satellite tests yeah. of which we had one by by russia end of last year which yeah. now respectively makes a lot of sense in many ways is there, is there anything we can do there any sort of like equivalent like we had you know i think in the 50s and 60s where eventually we got to like a ban on like you know a nuclear tests and yeah. uh, are there any efforts being made towards something like that yeah so there there is there's something that has been started at the un general assembly as i moved to the it's called the conference on disarmament that is the the, the space security focus side of the of, of the un that's mm-hmm. called and this is so terrible it's 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 un bureaucratic language so it, it doesn't exactly um demonstrate what it is initially it's something called the open-ended working group on um i believe space space norms um i should go look that up open-ended open-ended working group yeah right which 
beer cutting language, but they're, they're, <laughs> that's not incentivizing anybody. No, no but it, but it, it's not actually open ended when you get into it. It's it, uh, it's open ended in terms of a wide scope of topics that can be discussed, but it does have a, a timing mandate. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, without without delving way deep into UN bureaucracy, the, this this is a forum which has been set up to define essentially principles of responsible behavior by states um, in their space security actions. And so there, there will likely be discussion of ASAT testing and debris creation as part of that. Current events, we'll see how, how effective that, that process is, but there, there's certainly interest mm-hmm. in, in having that conversation. And I, I think it's also possible that you may see individual states uh, take, take a leadership position and, and, and do things at the, at the national level as, as kind of a, a forward-thinking you know, leadership statement, and we'll see, we'll see what, what happens there. But yeah, I, th- I, think, I think there is a, a win window for, for discussion of this, um, what is responsible behavior by states in the space security environment, including ASAT and debris creation. I think there's a window for discussion of this and, and a meaningful discussion that, that we have not seen uh, for a while. So I hope, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I, I hope, I hope, I hope. So yeah, let's just end it there. I hope. Um, but, but I think there's a real yeah. window here. Um, it was a, it was a, yeah. you know, the, the current situation in, in Ukraine will will affect it as it will affect any diplomatic um, engagement right now. But I, I think there's a window there. That that act by by Russia was just fundamentally irresponsible, and there's no way there's no other way to just describe it. And there's there's recognition of that. Yes, yes, and some other countries have also made similar tests in the past. And they have, yeah, so, yeah, including the U.S. Right, including um, including India and including China. Right. Um, so. Yeah. 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 So in the in the this larger topic we've been discussing now debris for a while. Is there any other sort of you know um, aspect that we haven't discussed that we should discuss in this to, you know, this topic of debris mitigation? Um, so one of the other things that I think is interesting, kind of going back to to, to markets and, and how um, incentives might play out, right? So one of the other things that we see developing is is the satellite servicing environment, right? So the idea that you could go up and mm-hmm. extend the life of a satellite, repair it, uh, move it, you know, if it fails. To, to achieve operational orbit, move it uh, to its orbit, right? And I think there are some interesting mm-hmm. overlaps and, and complementaries between satellite servicing and debris removal, right? So that, that the, the incentive to develop satellite servicing capabilities may actually help us develop some capabilities that are relevant for, for debris removal and actually find, you know, find markets uh, that exist for servicing that might not exist for, for debris removal in the, in the early. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then the technical overlap is yeah. here, right? So yeah. especially stuff like RPOD or rendezvous proximity yeah. ops and, and, and docking technologies yeah. Are, yeah. are clearly relevant um, across these, yeah. these activities yeah. that, that you mentioned. Yeah. Okay, no, that's, that's a very fair point. And there's exciting startups um, for for all of these activities, yeah. by the way. Yeah. So shifting gear a little bit, so you've been talking quite a bit, or you've been using the expression um, orbits quite a bit, so like you know keeping the orbits safe and everything. Yeah. But it's not limited to the orbits, right? I mean, we're going to have uh, like a lot of lunar activity yeah. coming yeah. up if all goes well. Yeah. I assume you guys are including like the wider space environment, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I actually have a project. I'm part of the big group that that's called. Uh, that's, that's looking at sustainable lunar governance, right? So um, that that uh-huh. is very much a, a part of our definition of space sustainability. I've also done some work on um, space resources utilization and what does that mean? You know, if we're going to start mining or extracting resources 
from at the moon and asteroids. How does how do we do that in a way that is sustainable, mm-hmm. safe, and 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 reduces conflict and kind of um, solve some of the gaps that we have in international space law, right? So very much, very much part of the scope. Yep. Yeah, if you start if you start like I don't know strip strip mining the moon, it's going to upset. Something right. So. I mean, yeah, it, you know, it's got <laughs> cultural significance, right? That, that, that is a very yep. important uh, thing. It's got um, scientific significance, right? That we have to balance that use. So yeah, and then it's our treaty system has some very fundamental principles, but operationalizing them in the lunar context is something that, that no one has a real good handle on yet. Meanwhile, missions are flying, right? Yeah. So I was going to ask, so like what it actually means in practice when you guys are having these, yeah. these, these working groups and starting discussions, kind of what, what kind of topics are you guys actually discussing? Yeah. Like where are you starting to this, yeah. this conversation? So so uh, one of the topics that, that, that's being discussed, I can pick a few, but in the, in the lunar context is um, safety and, and safety zones, right? So if you're if you're conducting a lunar operation, be it a scientific operation, be it an exploration, being a commercial, how do you have a, a zone that you can define that is, you know, I'm operating this, I need to have a little bit of a little bit of ability to, to control this environment for, for safety of my mm-hmm. operations and safety of other operators, yet still, you know, respect that the governance system or the governance principles that we have call for freedom of access to the lunar surface and for mm-hmm. you know uh, non-appropriation of the lunar surface right so trying to figure out principles of, of safety zones is an active conversation that that's in, in a lot of the space resources and, and lunar governance conversations uh, what, what are some other examples that i can pick on um in the space resources context uh we've talked a little bit about figuring out uh priority rights and, and and resource regime resource rights regime so if you're a luxembourgish space mining company you know you're the government of Luxembourg can say you have the right to extract those resources, but is the U.S. going to recognize that? Is China going to recognize that? Is Brazil going to recognize that? Right. So beginning to figure out a way for for countries to recognize uh, the activities of others um, is is a conversation that, that that's going on in that realm as well. Um, I say conversations because a, a lot of these things are still uh, being discussed. Not much has been formalized or, or mm-hmm. decided yet, but um, I think that's all right. We're trying not to get to the sense where we regulate before we have too much practice, right? So you got to find that balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. But on the, on the other hand, I guess you'd also want to avoid, um, I don't know, people would have different views on that. I was going to say you want to avoid like a total like Wild West scenario, yeah. but then some people would argue that the Wild West was economically very efficient. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, that, that's one argument. I was going to say the Wild West also allowed, you know, if you were a small operator, us to let the, the big guy to just come and steal your claim, right? Which is not particularly great, mm-hmm. great for you either so uh, the wild west is a it's a evocative uh, analogy to use i'm not so sure it's it's a great one but it, it certainly is evocative yeah yeah it's somewhere on the spectrum yeah. of uh, possible out- yeah. outcomes um okay cool um let's see so besides the moon let's talk about some other aspects i guess of uh, which are also related to all of this um well actually no let me give you a complete curveball question um, <laughs> all right this may come out of, out of the blue for you um but I, I swear i've been interested in this for a while and i haven't gotten a good answer so so some people may know, so I suspect many people do not know that when the space shuttle was first planned in the late 60s, beginning of the 70s, the plans were very ambitious. It was supposed to fly hundreds and hundreds of times per year. It's supposed to be a big fleet. And as a result, people expected the cost to be actually really low, the transport costs to space. I mean, actually comparable if you if you put it in today's dollars to something like we, we're only seeing now with like Falcon Heavy and things yeah. like that. Um, as a consequence of that, people thought there would be all of these use cases already in the 70s, um, including space tourism and, of course, take satellites and all of that. But one use case that was actually in the documents and people can check this was, oh, we could take nuclear waste <laughs> to space. 
And so I'm just bringing this up because, you know, we are getting to a stage now where Starship works. It's going to be very cheap to go to space. I, I expect nuclear fission is going to make a comeback, a comeback on Earth, um, again, partly because of the geopolitical situation. I mean, it's already happening. Yeah, is that something that ever came across your mind? And I, I don't know. How, how, would you, how would you think about this? <laughs> Rafael, I may add to your list of people that don't give you an answer on this question. Um, <laughs> um, I can't say that it has ever crossed my mind. I mean, obviously, yeah, you're, you're right, right? Starship, um, if it flies, is going to fundamentally change the nature of what the launch costs are, right? Um, and, and, and and do uh, uh, enable us to do some some different things. Um, <laughs> launching even um, nuclear power sources for spacecraft is a massive challenge, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of regulatory barriers to even doing that. Um, so I. I can't see that um, the U.S. Or, or Europe or even China is going to jump towards launching um, uh, waste. Um, I, I think that I think the public would have some some severe reaction to that idea. So I I, I don't see that immediately uh, immediately happening. And just kind of from a from a personal value standpoint, I mean the idea that we would solve one waste problem by by just dumping it into a different domain. Um, that's a I guess it's a, a feature of humanity, but it's not a particularly great one, right? Yeah. Although okay, I, I don't want to dwell too much yeah. um, on this question. Thank you for playing along. Yeah. It was more of a fun one. Although you would you would go into a domain that's completely irradiated. Right. To begin true. With. True. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah true. It's not, it's yeah you're dumping it in like a yeah, tropical, yeah, very, tropical very, rainforest. Very, very, very <laughs> fair point, right? It's not, not dumping it into, a, into an environment where there's a lot of life that we know about that would be immediately affected by it, but, but true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, actually, super good point you brought up. I mean, um, there's already discussion of like when we eventually go to places like Mars where, you know, obviously we've done robotic research, but that is obviously limited. Um, there's this whole question of like if we, if we actually encounter indigenous life, of whatever form yeah. how we deal with that uh, is that something that's somewhere like on on your list of topics as well uh, because i guess that's sort of sustainability yeah i mean for secure world that that is not a, a huge focus or it's not at all a focus uh for us it's i don't know I, in part because we we don't do a lot with with human spaceflight um for our organization it's just not a focus area um mm -hmm. so we haven't done too much in that area i mean there's cospar and planetary protection guidelines that, that begin to think mm -hmm. about that but no i I, I don't have anything intelligent to say on that one. Apologies. No, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, first the nuclear waste question on this one. <laughs> That's good. I mean, stretch the mind, right? But um, yeah, the, the, the edit button might, might need it on that one. <laughs> Okay so, uh, okay, so let's shift gears again, and I hope I hope the next yeah. question is somewhere in um, in the wheelhouse again. Uh, we want to talk about, talk about sustainability, right? Sometimes in finance, we, or very often we use the, the, also the expression ESG, yep. Yep. and then some people argue it's interchangeable, other people say it's not, yeah. but let's, let's not get into that discussion. Yeah. But so the environmental part is only one of the three letters, yep. right? Uh, the E, and then you have the S and G, yeah. S for social energy for governance. Yeah. So, how much are you guys doing with the S and the G parts? And then, you know, as one example I could bring up here is um, diversity in the space yeah. sector, right? Which is still arguably lacking a lot. Yeah. I would say we do more with the G than than the S, but we do look at look at both of those in addition to the E. Um, so, for social and 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 that part of ESG, a lot of I would say our work is uh, focused on making sure. Our programs have the widest range of perspectives and viewpoints and diversity represented as, as is possible given the, given the nature of the program. So a lot of what we do is about bringing together people for dialogue, putting on workshops or, or panels, um, and we try to design those with the intent to, to, to bring in a range of perspectives. And that's, that's because if you have the right range of perspectives in the room, you get the better answers, right? You get the better solutions. Um, and so, mm -hmm. so I view that as very integral to the, the, the way a good program is put together. On the governance side, right? I mean, we do a, we do a lot of work on, on policy and regulation, right? So that's governance in the, 
in the system level um, at the at the company at the corporate level, right? It's kind of thinking about making sure that we can encourage companies to think about compliance and regulatory as, as part of the business plan from the or the the, the operations from the get go, right? It, it's thinking about how licensing and 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 that process fits into what you're doing as a company and that it's not something that you come to at the launch and go, oh, wait, we have to do this licensing stuff that it's integrated into uh, into how you go. Um, and it's thinking about, you know, where where new regulatory processes are required, how we can um, facilitate the conversations between the regulatory community and the and the corporate community to make sure that those, those regulatory solutions are designed in a way that facilitate um, inclusion in, in corporate governance practices. Felt like a somewhat incomplete answer, but I hope it gave a little bit of context. Um, no, no, certainly. And so, related to that, I was curious how, I mean, how do you guys actually approach your work in the, let's take, you were talking about the governance part, right? And how do you guys actually approach this in, in, in practice? Does that mean, for example, you guys are hanging out on you know, Capitol Hill and try to speak to representatives yeah. or at the UN or how, yeah, is so, all, how is it all actually being done? <laughs> So I could talk about. I mean, that that'd be a conversation that could go for days because uh, it's it's a, it's a it's a wide range, even a small organization. Um, so a, a lot of what we so we do do a lot of work at the UN, right, and and other multilateral organizations. So we are formerly we are an observer at UN COPUS, which is the UN Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space. It's the mm-hmm. it's the UN body that deals with with space governance on the civil side. Uh, so we participate there. We participate in things like the Group on Earth Observation, which is a multilateral or multi-governmental organization that deals with Earth observation policy. And so in forums like that, we are able to act as an observer. We are able to bring in kind of non-governmental civil society perspectives into those dialogues or into those forums. So that's one mode. Um, Another mode is we will uh, show up at a technical event or at a policy event and bring the other side of the conversation. So this is a a large, I'm going to give you an example. There's a large technical conference on space uh, situational awareness and, and, and observational technologies. It's called the, the uh, Advanced Maui Optical Surveillance or AMOS conference. It, oh, AMOS. Yeah, 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 sure, in, in Maui. Maui, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So we run a policy forum at that conference. So it is a primarily a technical audience. It's you know the people that are building the systems, doing the modeling, et cetera. We bring in policymakers and have a conversation there about what the you know take a particular issue and what, how the policy community and the technical community need to interact on that on that issue. Um, give you one other example. I, I mentioned space resources. I'm trying to need to look at some of the legal gaps and figure out a framework to enable space resources development. We work with a number of partner organizations to establish a, a group known as the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group, which was a mix of academic experts, government experts, industry experts, and civil society NGOs like us, and worked over two years to develop, actually four years, to develop a set of principles that we think should be in, in, involved in any regulatory frameworks or policy frameworks or space resources, and recommended that to the international community. So it's you know facilitating an expert consultative process and then producing an outcome. Um, I could keep going, but but uh, I don't want to get too arcane into 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 things that don't have context. So no, no I yeah. think I think I think you've given yeah. some, some good examples of, of, of how you're doing yeah. the work in practice. So let me ask you this: so as a wider space community, right? Uh, other members of the, the, the space ecosystem, like startups, like uh, people like me, like investors, right? Um, how should we think about all of this? How can we help your work? Yeah. So, so thanks for that question. And I, I, uh, I've got some thoughts, but I'd love to kind of hear your your reaction to these as well. So specifically to to venture investors, right? I mean, it, it, if the venture investment community is looking towards 
space as a, as a new opportunity and then the growth in the space sector and, you know, potentially an expanding um, industrial sector and then seeing the opportunity there. Uh, I would uh, ideally like to see space sustainability and, and, and space uh, operational practice considered as a risk factor uh, that's evaluated dur- during the, 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 the diligence process. So what are the risks to the domain and any particular company's involvement uh, that might challenge or um, reduce the potential return and the potential growth of, of the space economy? And how can we think about investing in companies that are properly cognizant of, of, of those risks and, 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 and acting to, to reduce them? So, you know, uh, what does a company's space debris mitigation plan if they're an operator? Is a company aware of their regulatory and compliance requirements as they go into their initial business planning and initial marketing. Um, what uh, d- does a company uh, understand about the geopolitical risks that they're that involved in the space domain, right? I mean, I don't want to particularly pick on OneWeb, but I'm not sure that they anticipated that they'd have to move, uh, that, that they'd have to, you know, mm-hmm. be kicked mm-hmm. off their launch vehicle, yeah. right? Um, that is a that is a risk, right? So to the extent that these sorts of things can be considered and be aware of um, in, in kind of the the deal flow process and the diligence process, I think there might be uh, might be some opportunity there. Now, I mean, you know, I, I do understand obviously that you know, venture investment is about spreading risk over over multiple investors or multiple multiple investments, and 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 seeing you know that that some of them won't return and some of them will. Um, but you know, just uh, building some awareness of this domain as as it becomes a becomes a key part of or becomes a key area of interest for for a broadening investor base. I think uh, I think I would think there's some potential there, and I you know would, would be curious to see. Uh, to see where that goes. Um, that was part of your question, Rafael. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's let's take the break here and um, let me let me. You were asking for my yeah. thoughts, so I tend to agree with that, and I kind of look at it both from a macro and a micro level. What do I mean by that? A macro level, sort of like again looking um, across space as an entire ecosystem, making sure that you know, space um, continues to be a safe um, a safe domain uh, that allows commercial um, operations. Because I mean. The last thing we want is that it's an unsafe domain that um, and commercial operations would no longer be possible or impacted by you know, some catastrophic de- debris yeah. event or or a military activity or something like that. Uh, on a micro level, yeah, sort of, uh, I think this is what you're talking about, sort of evaluating company by company that, A, they're hopefully um, uh, not doing anything that uh, compromises the macro environment, but then also, uh, as you were saying, evaluating what their, what their risks are. I think we are... Doing that, um, I'm just speaking for my own home term. We're definitely doing that. I'm not sure we're doing it in the most systematic way possible. And sort of, you know, if you guys at the foundation either already had or could develop some sort of standardized um, due diligence checklist, yeah. um, because I mean, some of the stuff is obvious, right? But there's going to be other stuff which is sort of less right. obvious. If you know what I mean? Yeah, right. So yeah, I think any sort of like document or or help would be, um, and it could even be if it doesn't exist yet, we could even sort of work on that together. By the way. Yeah. So this, I think, would be interesting. I mean, we have started some initial conversations with Secure World, and I've talked to a few other people in the community about a I still don't quite know what to call it, but a primer or a checklist for you know responsible investment in in, in space, right? And so it's something like that. I don't think that's the right title, right? But. Um, you know, just a, a simple ten points. The, the, yeah. the, op, the, the open, the open-ended list of sustainability. Yeah, the open-ended. Yeah, yeah, I like that <laughs> because I'm sure that will that will see a lot of uptake, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, so so that type of product, right? And 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 Rafael, there there are folks like yourself and others who are space savvy investors, right? You know, who know this market, who come to satellite, right? Mm-hmm. Who come to the small sat show in, in California, and then there are there are folks in in 
in firms that have you know one or two space deals right on the side of a deep tech mm. fund, right? And they don't they don't they don't know the first thing about this domain, and they don't necessarily need to, right? So it's how do you make a resource that is available for for that part of the community as well, right? Mm -hmm. And which of course then helps lowering the bar for them that they're actually. Um, uh, uh, I'm more likely to make right. investments in space. Right. So it's yeah, right. very, because, very valuable. You know, that I, that, that there's a risk, and maybe this is, you know, because I'm not deep in the investment world, but there's a risk that, hey, I'm going to make my first investment in a space company, and then that space company does something dumb and turns that investor off on the space world altogether, right? And I don't want to see that outcome either. Yeah. yeah. No, no, absolutely. That's, that's the last thing we want is some sort of, you know, a really bad um, thing happening in space investment. A lot of people like lose money unnecessarily. Yeah. That's that's just not going to be good for the yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. Cool. Um, so we're, we're coming towards the end here. So I wanted to give you a chance. I, I saw you guys are actually working on your own summit for, I think it's the summit for space sustainability. If yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yep. What is that? Um, what's going to happen at that summit? Yeah. So the, the summit for space sustainability is going to be uh, in London, uh, in the UK, June 22nd and June 23rd as a in-person event. So that's exciting. Um, this is the fourth year we've done this summit, and it is uh, our conference that we try to bring together a cross-cutting section of, of, of the space community and explore how space sustainability issues affect different parts of our, our world. So we will try to have a panels that uh, involve stakeholders that you usually would not see on the same panel to talk about how a certain issue um, flows across uh, different parts of our world. It's basically, you know, as we see space sustainability becoming more of a, of a highly um, visible and highly salient issue um, to make sure that we continue to, to push those conversations forward and, and provide a forum where um, industry, government, and, 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 and the broader community can just exchange viewpoints and, and, and develop some ideas towards solutions. So um, hope that uh, hope that you're able to attend and that the, the audience uh, on, on the podcast today is also you know, able to attend. So terrific. And um, there's probably a website, so we'll put yeah, that yeah. Uh, the episode yeah. notes as well. Yep. SWFsummit.org, I believe, is the is the uh, yep SWFsummit.org, and then we are pleased this year to be partnered with uh, the the United Kingdom Space Agency as our as our co-host. Okay, terrific. Okay, which brings me to the final question, which um, I always ask, as you know, which is uh, what science fiction, and you know, there's arguably some you know situations in science fiction which are relevant to um, or related to space sustainability, you know, we've been talking about the situation on the moon, you know, and you you have some of these Wild West type situations depicted in like, um, for example, like in the movie Ad Astra. But but anyway, um, it doesn't have to be what yeah. space sustainability is. The general question, uh, what is your, do you like science fiction? And what are some of your favorite science fiction works? <laughs> I do indeed uh, like science fiction. It'd be, um, I think it'd be hard to, to operate in my world without at least having some appreciation for it, right? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I'll, I'll give you two answers. Uh, I'll give you the one that, that I've most see um, in my work, and I'll give you the one that just kind of most kind of changed my perspective, if you will, right? I don't know that either of these will be too unique, but um, I'll, I'll give you both. So the, the one that I see a lot of in my work um, is, is, believe it or not, The Expanse, right? Um, some of the mm. some of the political mm -hmm. structures that uh, that those authors yep. were able to work into that into that series, um, I, I definitely could see playing out over 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 time. Um, the the space resources questions and some of the mm -hmm. that, that, that led to the you know the differences between the belt and the uh, and the inners, right? I could see some of that. Um, maybe not at that scale, right? But th I could see some of those those equity questions and distribution questions. Um, playing out in in in, in, the, in in the real world um so that one I, that one i could really kind of apply right to some of the work that that, that i was doing and it's also mm -hmm. just, a, just mm -hmm. a great television adaptation um and then the other one that i always think about that, that just kind of when i when i was reading this i just put it down and went whoa that that really changed my thinking um is the three body problem uh, the 
the Chinese oh, tri- yes. trilogy, right? Um, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't want to give much away, but it, it is is well worth reading. The first the first book can be a little slow to get into, but um, once you get it going, it it, it uh, some of the uh, anthropological, I guess, and cultural questions that uh, that, that mm-hmm. series raises is uh, really kind of challenges my, my challenge the existing way i thought about some things and so i really really got a lot out of that series yeah that's i mean i mean both of those i'm very partial to those long-time listeners will have you know i would have quickly mentioned it before but people should watch the expanse or read the books and but yeah like you said the, tele, the tv adaptation is actually very very good and and definitely also the three-body problem uh, problem yeah. and the, the whole trilogy it's um it's three books it's yeah. just uh, absolutely amazing exploration of, of, of a number of topics including how you know how we would deal with alien yeah. contact and how yeah. alien contacts may deal yeah, with yeah. us yeah right and it's uh <laughs> It's not, it's not the typical way, right? Um, to say that. So, um, uh, yeah, like I said, I don't think either of those are particularly unique, but um, there's a reason they're not unique, right? Because they, they say something and they mean something. So, yeah. And then, and lastly, the last point I said is, is also the three body problem is, was written by Xi Xin Lu, so a, a very prominent Chinese yeah. science fiction writer. Yeah. And I think many of us may have only read sort of Western yeah. um, science fiction writers. So, also from, from that regard, from having a different perspective, it's, it's well yeah. worth reading it. Yeah, but my sense is that the translators, did a pretty good job of of, of maintaining uh, the integrity of the, of the text, right? Um, I have no way to judge. Yeah. But I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Fair point. Ian, thank you so much. Indeed. That was a really uh, fascinating exploration yeah. of a little bit of a different topic than you know we've, we've had so far, but I think uh, well worthwhile. Yeah. And hope the listeners think the same. And yeah, good luck with with your work at the foundation. Yeah, well, Rafael, thanks for having me, and it you know thought it made, made me think about some things differently as well. So that's that's excellent. So appreciate it. Thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, Check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.